I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. We've been in this chapter for several weeks, and we are drawn to this chapter because it is the great turning point in our Lord's public ministry. Up until this time, he is greatly popular. After this time, his popularity is diminished, and what we think of as the final year of opposition is in full swing. Those are very generalized uh, descriptions of these years of his public ministry. In fact, we have seen in chapter 6 already two of seven recorded miracles in the Gospel of John. The other Gospels mention many more. John mentions seven. And let me just go over those. In chapter 2, there's the turning of water into wine at the marriage in Cana. Second is the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4 in Capernaum. Third, uh, the healing of the lame man in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. And then, uh, let's see, that, then 5, or 4 and 5 here are in chapter 6. The feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the sea. And we've seen both of those here already. And then number six is in chapter nine, the healing of the blind man in Jerusalem. And then number seven, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in Bethany in chapter 11. So John goes into great detail in these seven miracles that he records. And so we begin here reading in verse 22, John 6, 22. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherein two his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. And may the Lord give his blessing 
to the reading of Holy Scripture. So the events here in chapter 6 cover two days. And John gives us so much detail that we, we really enter into these two days and we feel like we have lived through these two days a little bit ourselves. The first day we saw the Lord going across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee over to the eastern shore, the northeastern shore, seeking for some rest and peace and quiet from the very a demanding schedule that he had kept. He brought the 12 disciples with him. But we saw that he didn't get any rest. The multitude followed him over on a land route. And what little time that Jesus and the disciples had was uh, quickly interrupted, came to an end here. By the multitude, thousands of people as they all gathered together. And then at the close of that day, after a long day of ministering, teaching, healing, and finally feeding, we saw him send away the disciples in a boat to go back across the Sea of Galilee. We saw him dismiss the multitudes and send them away, and he goes up into a mountain. And in that mountain, he prayed. We, and then he comes down at, you know, before sun up, the fourth watch of the day, somewhere after 3 a.m., and delivers the disciples from a dangerous storm on the Sea of Galilee miraculously walks on the water, making his way to them, as we saw last time. And I'm, I'm repeating all that to say this. It doesn't appear that the Lord got any sleep that night. It gives us just a little idea of what the great demands were upon our Lord and his human frame in his incarnation and in his public ministry, how exhausted he must have been. This should be a comfort to those who know long days and little sleep or sometimes no sleep. The Lord Jesus is able to sympathize with you. Well, what became of these over 5,000 <clears throat> He had sent them away. They had observed the disciples leaving in a boat there at the very close of the day. We don't know where all of them went. It could be some were scattered here and there. I mentioned last time that obviously a large group of them stayed pretty close to the shore where the miraculous feeding had occurred and evidently just... Uh, camped out, uh, made some kind of uh, of a temporary place. Perhaps some who lived close enough were able to return home. Perhaps some determined to continue their journey on to the Passover in Jerusalem, and they didn't want to miss that. But we know that there was at least a large number of them that remained more or less in place 
fully expecting to see Jesus the next morning. They were following his movements carefully. The disciples have gone over here. Jesus has gone up into this mountain. We'll see him first thing in the morning when he comes down. And so they get up early and they're watching for him. But they don't see him. He doesn't appear. He doesn't come down from the mountain. So verse 22 says the day following. When the people which stood on the other side of the sea, that is the side where, where the miracle had taken place, saw that there was none other boat there, save the one that, uh, where into his disciples were entered. So the boat that, that Jesus and the disciples came over on is, evidently is gone. There's no, in other words, and there's no other boat that Jesus himself might have taken to get across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did not go with his disciples. The disciples went away alone. But then subsequently, perhaps overnight, because we know that they fished on the Sea of Galilee at night, and perhaps some of these boats from Tiberias, which was the, the far western end of the Sea of Galilee, perhaps they got blown off course or something, so they're coming up here to this area. Verse 23 says, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, the, the city of Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread after that the Lord had given thanks. These other boats had arrived since the disciples left, but none of these boats had left. And, and that's the significance here. These people are trying to figure out where is Jesus. There's no way that he could have gotten on a boat and, and gone separately because there were no boats there at that time. And all the boats that have come in are, are still here. <clears throat> and by the way, it's interesting to note here how that the, Lord, the Lord's giving of thanks when he blessed the loaves and fishes before this miraculous feeding made quite an impact upon the Apostle John and no doubt everyone else there after that the Lord had given thanks. He says in verse 23, perhaps pointing out that this was an, an extraordinary prayer. And perhaps it underscores the fact that this was an extraordinary miracle. And it, it must have been quite a sight to see you know, five pieces of bread and two little dried fish and Jesus asking a blessing on this. This was before it, had, it was miraculously multiplied. So, verse 24 goes on with the story. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, maybe they went up into the mountains, sent a few people, see if you can find him up there. No, he's not there. Neither are the disciples here. They've already left. We saw them all leave. They also took shipping, and this is uh, an old way of, in English of saying they, they got on boats, made a voyage themselves, and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. They assume that Jesus is most likely to be found in Capernaum. And perhaps they reasoned like this. We know he sent his disciples that direction. 
And so he would most likely have sent them to where he himself was going to go and join them. And they're thinking, if we can find his disciples, we'll find him. And I would make an application of that for us. May it be true with us that those who are seeking for Christ would find him if they find us. That we would be in his company. And that as God directs hearts to seek him, they might know where to look in our midst. Well, there's no mention here in their being ferried across the the northern section of the Sea of Galilee of any storms here that morning. And isn't that interesting? The 12 disciples encountered the storm earlier, but these who, as we will see, are not even worthy of being called disciples at all, had smooth sailing or smooth rowing that day. Sometimes unbelievers find ease where believers find difficulty. Believers encounter trouble in the path of duty, following Jesus' orders, as did the disciples here. While unbelievers find a path of ease, seeking their carnal thrills. God works in mysterious ways. Well, this was a search mission for Jesus. It uses that Language specifically there at the end of verse 24. They came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. Now, seeking for Jesus is a good thing. It's a commendable uh, action. And their diligence is, in a way, commendable. Perhaps they had to pay out of their own pocket money to these uh, boat owners to ferry them across. There was some effort and determination upon their part to find Jesus. They really wanted to find him. They weren't going to give up. And verse 25 says that they found him. They found him on the other side of the sea. Many people seek for Jesus today. And their search is a rather diligent search. And in some measure they find Him. No more than these people found Him. They have some encounter. They have something of His presence. But as we shall see, and if you know the remainder of the chapter, you already know, not all that glitters is gold. And just because people in some way seek Jesus and in some way find him is no guarantee that all is well. So this is a soul-searching passage for us. 
They knew that they would find him where the disciples were, and they knew the disciples had headed most likely to Capernaum because that seems to be where they came from the day before. And since Capernaum was was near the shore, they, they go into the city, and from the wording here later on in the chapter, it seems that they found Jesus in the synagogue. In verse 59, it says, These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. It could be, of course, that the conversation started in some other part of town, but they ended up in the synagogue. But I I think it's interesting to look at it this way, that they knew where to find him. They knew that he would be in a place of worship. Do people know where to find you and me? Well, I hope that they at least know where to find us on the Lord's days. So we come finally to their question in verse 25. They said unto him, Rabbi, that is master. It's a term of honor and respect. Teacher, when camest thou Hither. This is their great question. They're curious. They really want to know, when did you get here? And kind of implied in that is, how did you get here? We were watching you. We had guards up all night to, to tell us if you had come down the hill. How did you get here? When did you get here? You have to wonder, did they suspect something miraculous had occurred? Or perhaps their question is more geared in this way. Are you avoiding us? You were over there with us on the other side and now you're over here. When did you come here? Don't you know that 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 we're following you and that that you shouldn't leave without us? Don't you know that we want to make you a king and we have the power to do it? We have the following. There's many of us here. Don't you know that you need us to accomplish a coronation as a king? Just imagine you are a newspaper reporter there in Capernaum and you've been following the events and the excitement of uh, the previous day and thus far this day. What what appears here? Well, we have a large group of people who are very devoted to following Jesus. And when he slips out of their sight, they eagerly find him. And they address him with a, a title of honor, rabbi. And so as you're writing your story for the the morning newspaper, you would say, you know, a large group of Christians uh, is following Jesus. And they are faithful disciples of His. But things are not always what they appear, are they? And 
looking around us today, we might say, oh, there's multitudes in churches. Is it always all that it appears to be? Well, God knows our hearts, and, and we see that here in the text. Jesus knew the hearts of these people, and he exposed their hearts. And beginning in verse 26 is the opening of a lengthy discourse, a discourse that takes us pretty much through the end of the chapter until the, the, the multitude leaves. <clears throat> and it's, it's hard to call this a sermon because if, if it was a sermon as such, there are frequent interruptions and the people are asking questions and, and making comments and so on. So maybe we should better uh, call it some kind of an exchange between the Lord and these people. And so you notice, if you happen to have a red-letter Bible, that up to verse uh, 26, there's only a couple of direct statements made by our Lord recorded here on the previous day. Now we see lots of words of our Lord recorded here on this following day. The first day we see our Lord in action on this next day we see him or we hear him teaching and instructing and even rebuking. So let's look quickly at verses 26 and 27. We see in verse 26 that Jesus exposes the wrong motives of the multitude. And then in verse 27, he admonishes them to the right motive as well as the right action. So exposing the wrong motive, verse 26, he begins by saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you. He, he doesn't even attempt to answer their question. Their question was, how did you get here? Or when did you get here? And he could have said, I walked across the Sea of Galilee miraculously about halfway across and then I got in the boat and calmed the storm and immediately we're at the shore here. But he didn't answer their question at all, did he? Probably because telling them how he got there and when he got there would only have fed the celebrity status that he had with the multitude at this point that he wanted to avoid. We see here his humility. He had no more desire for fame than he had for an earthly crown. And so instead of answering their question, he begins to instruct them and expose their hearts. And he, he opens with this very solemn word, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you. And here is the Son of God as a man on earth speaking to these people. And may God help us to hear the words of Christ today also. And he says, ye seek me. Not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Now what he says in so many words here is... You're only interested in a free breakfast. 
that full feeling you had late yesterday after eating what I miraculously provided has, uh, has worn off. You know, food doesn't last forever. That full feeling only lasts for a few hours. It's time now to break the fast and breakfast and eat once again. He says, this is why you're here. This is why you're following me. It's interesting, though, that he says, you seek me not because you saw the miracles. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle. But he's distinguishing earlier miracles from that one. And it seems here that the motivation of these people had deteriorated even from what it was the day before. In verse 2, it says, A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. And even though when we started out here in this chapter, we commented that this is, is, is questionable as far as their motive is concerned, it's very clear that by the next day, their motive is entirely personal and uh, has to do with being fed. In a way, our Lord is saying, you should be seeking me because of the miracles in this sense. Because the miracles and all of the healing and, and casting out of devils and so on that he had done up to this point were proofs of his deity, proofs of his being the Son of God and the Savior, the Messiah. You recall back in chapter 3, it was the miracles that Jesus did that, that brought Nicodemus to Jesus by night. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles. It's the same word that thou doest, except God be with him. The miracles had pointed Nicodemus to Jesus. And, and he saw more than just miracles. He saw him as a man sent from God. And that's what the miracles should have done in the minds of, of the multitude here. But instead, they just wanted a free breakfast. Now, there's some lessons to learn here. Christ is concerned not only about our action, but our motive to it. He says, "Ye seek me. Well, we're, we're told to seek the Lord in many places in the Old Testament. But he's concerned not only about our action, but our reason, our motive for seeking him. We must seek him for his own sake because of who he is. And, and the miracles he did pointed to who he is. And it wasn't then just seeking miracles, but it was seeking him. That was the great issue on the other hand selfish motives invalidate our search selfish motives spoil the search for Jesus selfish gain is the lowest of motives he tells us here and so let us learn that true religion deals first and foremost 
with the heart. The heart. What is inside. Our reason, our motives, why we do what we do. It's possible to have some outward action that is that, that, that by all appearances is good and proper. But why? Why do we seek Him? Is our heart right with God? Are we seeking Him because of who He is? His glory. The Lord told Israel, or, or told Samuel, concerning Saul, man looks on the outward appearance, but... God doesn't look as man looks. The Lord looketh upon the heart. And so let us learn that Christ knows our deepest heart. He knows our motives, our desires. He knows the why. He knows why we're here today. We cannot hide our heart from him he sees everything we may deceive others we may deceive family and friends and pastor we may deceive our own selves but know for sure we cannot deceive the lord jesus christ and he exposes the motives here of these people and he exposes our motives may he expose any false motives that we have to us so that we might repent and purify our motives and our hearts before him before we go on to verse 27 let me just give an interesting quotation here very insightful uh, by J.C. Ryle he says Wisdom and discrimination in giving temporal relief to the poor are very necessary things in ministers and indeed in all Christians. Unless we take heed what we do in such matters, we do more harm than good. To be always feeding the poor and giving money to those who make some profession of religion is the surest way to train up a generation of hypocrites and to inflict lasting injury on souls. End quote. Well, certainly there is a time to help the needy and feed the poor and so on. But as this chapter shows us, and as Mr. Ryle underscores here, there is a point at which we're no longer doing a favor and we're doing more harm than good. We're perhaps enabling those who who are lazy or something like that. And you think of the social gospel, so-called, that has been around for a hundred and... 30 or 40 years now. What permanent good has it done? What has it accomplished? Well, you can answer that yourself. As Ryle says, perhaps it has trained up a generation of hypocrites 
and inflicted lasting injury upon souls. Well, we hasten here to verse 27. The Lord admonishes them to right action with a right motive. And he he takes here the the matter of food. Our our English translation calls it meat, but we shouldn't think necessarily of uh, you know something that was walking on four hooves. It's any kind of food. It's sustenance, and begins to make a an illustration of this kind of a parable that is the subject of his communication through the rest of this chapter. We see our Lord doing this with the woman at the well where you know there's there's water to drink there and our Lord takes that and weaves it into a uh, a very appropriate fitting illustration of spiritual things. He does the same thing here with food. Bread makes reference as we will see to manna in the days of Moses and so on. Our Lord was a master at this. And there's something for us to learn here. Think of how he dealt with the rich young ruler. Here's a man who has riches. And so our Lord talks about selling his possessions and giving to the poor. Nicodemus comes, as we mentioned a moment ago. Here's a a, a Jew so proud of his birth and his ancestry and so on. And Jesus talks to him about what? About his need of a new birth. And so on. And we see our Lord doing this again and again. I'm going to follow as quickly as I can get through it here. An outline of verse 27 given by J.C. Ryle. I can't improve upon it. He says that we see four things here. Number one, something forbidden. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. Now, this is obviously not an absolute Prohibition. We're commanded in other places of Scripture that we are to work and by the sweat of our brow we eat our bread. Uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And he tells Timothy that a man must provide for his own or else he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever and so on. Our Lord is no way endorsing laziness here when he says labor not. Work not for the meat or the the food which perishes. What he says here in the prohibition of working for perishing food should be understood relatively or comparatively. And we see our Lord saying things like this at various times in his ministry. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Well, it doesn't mean no sacrifice, but mercy comes first. We read there earlier, uh, take no thought. It doesn't mean don't make any plans whatsoever, but it means don't be worried. Don't be anxious about the needs of tomorrow and so on. And that's the way we take it here. Do not labor for material food as if that were the highest priority In life, don't let things that perish, spoil, be the main thing that you live for. 
He says that, of course, to correct them because they had come to that point where earthly food was all that they cared about now. They see a path to free free breakfast, free lunch, free supper, as long as they can stay close to Jesus. Secondly, he gives the command. There is something commanded. Labor or work for that meat or that food which endureth unto everlasting life. He says, let your priority be spiritual food. Food that sustains spiritual life. Life that is eternal. Our Lord is speaking of better food, spiritual food, for a better life, everlasting life. He says, let this be your chief concern to to have to feed your soul upon what truly satisfies. Because perishing things can only satisfy the body for a little while. They cannot satisfy the soul forever. He's pointing them away from earthly things to spiritual things, you see. And, and beloved, this needs to be shouted from the rooftops today. Because it, it, it is natural to us, as well as it, it is rampant in religion today, the focus upon the earthly and the material. There are many modern day Galileans. They're all around us. And let us make sure that we are not included in them. Who like this crowd seek Jesus and find Jesus. But not in truth. Because their real, the, the real object of their search is not Jesus himself. But it's what they can get from Jesus. It's personal, temporal, material gain. It's some earthly benefit, some carnal advantage. And what's even more sad is that there are false teachers abounding who encourage that kind of seeking and encourage seeking for those things. They're not ashamed of it. They don't hide it. They appeal to the covetous nature that is in lost man. Everybody dreams of being wealthy. Healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if not wise, at least healthy and wealthy. And if, if not wise and, and not in good health, at least wealthy. That's where the emphasis always is. Let us not be led astray. Let us seek higher things, heavenly things. Set our minds and hearts upon things above. And in as much as our Lord used earthly food as an illustration of spiritual food, let us take earthly things as 
as an encouragement to think of heavenly things. This is what Christ is interested in. And he tells us it's what we should be interested in. And so let us ask ourselves this question. Is my chief concern for earthly things or heavenly things, the things of man, the things of time and sense and temporal things, or the things of eternity and matters of the soul and my relationship to God? This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 when he says, the thing to seek first It's not food. Now we need to eat and God knows that. It's not clothing. We need clothing. God knows that. But that's a secondary matter. The first, the primary thing is to seek the kingdom of God. Seek the righteousness of God, which is Jesus Christ. I say again, perishing things cannot give everlasting satisfaction. It's impossible. It's, failure is built into that scheme. Multitudes around us have it all wrong. And their life is so small. Give them a smartphone and some gourmet coffee and uh, a boyfriend or girlfriend, and that's life. Nothing else to live for. As followers of Christ, we must see through that mirage and live for the interests of our never-dying soul. Very quickly here. Thirdly, not only something forbidden... Labor not for the meat which perisheth. Something commanded. Labor for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Something promised. Which the Son of Man shall give unto you. And I tell you, the the more I study this, I think this is worthy of a sermon in itself. Jesus here speaks to this multitude of people who within, uh, before the day is over, are not even going to be following him anymore. And he says to them, I, as the Son of Man, will give you this spiritual meat. Did he? Did they take it spiritually? Did they come to him and eat of the bread of life? This is the crowd that walked no more after him. And yet he says to them, I will give you spiritual food and spiritual life. And of course, implied is, if you will repent of your sins and believe on me. But don't miss, beloved, the, the message here of willingness on Christ's part to help the spiritual needs of these people. We might call this the free offer of the gospel, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. We don't know if any one of these was ever truly saved. Maybe some of them were later on in the book of Acts or something. And I emphasize this point 
Because some who get a taste of sovereign grace or Calvinism take the precious doctrine of election and turn it into something that it was never intended to be. Namely, a hindrance to coming to Christ. A roadblock to coming to Christ. And, you know, I could talk far beyond my time here today on this subject. It's, it's a great concern to me. I'll just say we have here a free offer. A free promise. He says, I'm willing if you are. I'll give you this life and this life-sustaining food, spiritually speaking, if you will come to me. And I want to say to all who can hear my voice today, the promise is still the same. If you come to Christ, He'll feed you with the bread of life. He'll save you. He'll put away your sins. He'll be your Savior. And so you must come to Him in faith. Fourthly, there is something declared here. For Him hath God the Father sealed. The seal, think of as a a, a stamp. In this case, a stamp of approval. A stamp of authenticity. A stamp of authorization. This is very parallel to what we considered in the previous hour about Christ being anointed by God and appointed by the Father. He's saying the same thing here. I'm the one that the Father has sealed with His seal of approval to be a Savior, to be a life-giving bread of life. Perhaps it's not... Going too far to say Jesus is implying here. The father has already made me a king. I don't need you to make me a king. The father has already sealed me for my offices. And so we again emphasize here that Christ is the only savior. There's no other. He's the one that the father has authorized and authenticated at his baptism and in all of his miracles and sayings thereafter. So, let me close with this one last observation. In verse 27, the command here is to labor. And it's the word work. It can be translated that way, and it is translated that way in verse 29. He says, work, work for what? For what he calls a gift. And that term is used there later in the verse, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. He says, work for this gift. Is this a contradiction? Depends on how you understand work. If we understand that the work that Jesus is talking about here is not of any merit in the sight of God, there's no contradiction. We do not earn salvation. It is a gift that is given freely 
we could never earn it. We could never afford it. If we lived a million years, it's beyond our reach. We're told repeatedly in Scripture that it's not of works, not by works. And yet our Lord does say work. And we have to see both sides of this coin. And and the side of the coin that Jesus is emphasizing here is this. If I can put it this way, no one was ever saved who did not apply himself and give priority to spiritual matters, as Jesus has just been saying here, and use the means of hearing the word and calling upon the name of the Lord. In other contexts, he speaks of striving to enter in. Though the door is wide open, no one ever enters without striving. And though salvation is a free gift, it must be diligently sought after. You won't be saved by accident. And so I encourage you to seek the Lord diligently. Seek Him truly. Seek Him with your whole heart. Seek Him for who He is. Seek first His righteousness. If you're only seeking Him halfway, making a half effort, don't be surprised that you don't find Him.